So Luke chapter 3. This is the sixth message in a series on the Gospel of Luke. The good thing about series is um, you have to deal with everything pretty much. You're not just dealing with the bits you like. You're also dealing with the stingy sort of bits as well. And Luke chapter 3 is about the ministry of John the Baptist. The first half of it that we're going to cover today is, and it's just stingy enough. So let's read. Um, I'm going to cover verses 1 to 20 today, but we're going to read from from verse 1 to 9 just to, to give us something to start with. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now listen to how John welcomes people to church. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Luke chapter three begins with seven names. Um, we've got Caesar, Tiberius, we've got Pontius Pilate, we've got Herod, we've got Philip, we've got Lysanias, and we've got Annas and Caiaphas. And there's two reasons for that list of names to be there at the start of Luke 3. One is historical. One is to let you know that this happened at a fixed, definite point in history. As we said a wee bit earlier in the series on Luke, this is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's not once upon a time. It's not just some random nice story. It is fixed and rooted in history. And here's a list of historical figures that, that give the whole thing a time and a date. But not only that, this also shows that the people were living in desperate times. Because every one of these seven people that are listed on the screen are bad eggs. Every one of them. Nasty boys. We have Caesar, who was, you know, Augustus Caesar, who we read about at the start of Luke's gospel, is now dead, and Tiberius has taken over. Tiberius was a ruthless leader. Pontius Pilate, we know plenty about him. And then these, these guys that were from the family of Herod, again, they were all uh, guys who had basically sold their souls, and, and Rome, they were, they were being used by Rome to rule over the Jewish people. Even the high priests down at the bottom there, Annas and Caiaphas, Nasty, nasty pieces of work. And, and one of the reasons for putting this in here in Luke's gospel is to say there's a story here. There's a backstory of oppression and misery and bad leadership and people just being continually pushed down and mistreated, both by the rule of Rome and the religion of the Jews. 
This is the background into which John's going to come. And we know that John is a prophet because he's introduced the way Old Testament prophets are introduced. There's always a mention of who was the ruler at the time. You have a prophet coming on the scene in the Old Testament. It'll say, during the reign of Uzziah or whatever, Isaiah spoke. And you'll, you'll know who the prophet's father was. And in this case, we've got John being the son of Zechariah. And then we'll get this phrase, the word of the Lord came. That's the way prophets are introduced. And John is an Old Testament prophet and a forerunner to the Messiah. All the Jews are desperate for a word from God. There's been silence for years, centuries. God has not spoken apart from what we've read about in the early chapters of Luke to Mary and to Zechariah. God has not spoken and the people are desperate for a word. So whenever this guy shows up in the wilderness and starts calling people to baptism, people sit up and take notice. Is this it? Finally, is there going to be change? Is there going to be breakthrough? Is God going to speak? And I want you to note that before we go any further, in in light of verses 1 and 2, in light of that list of oppressive leaders, in light of the fact that this was a dark time under foreign rule of pagans and under religious rule of people who did not really know God or represent him, in against that, God still works. In that darkness and in that oppression, he still comes through with his light and with his word. And the word that John brings, the message he brings in verse 3, is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Going a wee bit into Old Testament history, we have had two times when the people of Israel have been in slavery effectively under foreign rule. One was in Egypt And we had the Exodus, and then the second time was in Babylon, where they were in exile. After the Exodus, they came through water twice on their way out of slavery. They came through water in the Red Sea, they came through water in the Jordan. And it is no coincidence that John baptizes people in the Jordan. He is making a declaration that a people are coming out of slavery. That an exodus is taking place, a time of exile and slavery is ending. That's one of the reasons he uses baptism. Because every Jew is going to see them you know, being dunked in the Jordan and back out again. They're going to realize what's going on here is a new exodus is taking place. It's about repentance. And we're going to talk a little bit about repentance later. It's one of those church words, you know, one of those Christian words that we don't maybe really pay enough heed to. Luke actually mentions repentance more than the other three gospels put together. He's obsessed with it. And the repentance is leading towards the forgiveness of sins. Now the first time that Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they were there through no fault of their own. They were there because Joseph's descendants, Jacob's descendants had, had, had moved there, had settled there, had a good relationship initially with Egypt, but then Egypt began to oppress them. They had not done anything wrong. They were not in Egypt because of sin, and God delivered them. But when they were in Babylon, in exile, that was because of sin. And one of the things that you've got to realize, when you see the Bible talking about the forgiveness of sins, that also means the end of exile. 
because the people had gone into Babylon, into exile for their sins. So whenever there's a new move of God and there's an offer of forgiveness of sins, that means the exile is finally over. Because even though God's people did not live in Babylon anymore, they lived in their own land, but they were still under the rule of all of those nasty boys that we mentioned earlier on. John quotes the words of Isaiah and talks about preparing a way for the Lord. Whenever a king came, the roads were straightened out so that his carriage wouldn't bump on the roads and break a wheel. A path was made for him. It was basically the red carpet being rolled out. And the the words that Isaiah uses, it's almost as if creation rolls out the red carpet for the creator to come to town. And any time I read this, I'm always struck by this, this picture, which I've showed you before, but not for a while. This is Ballylisk Roundabout about, I don't know, maybe five years ago. Um, half the roundabout disappeared one day. Um, literally, it was like someone had sliced down the middle of it and taken half of the roundabout away. It seemed like a marvelous prank or something that, that had happened overnight. Just this thing was gone. Nobody quite knew why. And then it turned out in the newspaper a week or so later that that this thing was coming. There's a new, that's a vastly pixelated picture, but there was a new electricity transformer coming to the power station. It was coming in the docks, I think, at Warren Point. And it could not, every single route they looked at, it was either going over a roundabout or a bridge that it couldn't fit under or a road that wasn't able to carry the weight of it. The thing was so big, it was 60 tonnes. There was a lorry in front of it pulling it and another lorry behind it pushing it. But this thing couldn't go round a roundabout. It just couldn't actually make the curve to get around the roundabout. So what they decided to do was we will remove half of the roundabout. And then one Sunday morning, this this thing was delivered and, and drove straight over where the roundabout would have been. And it always makes me think that when something big is coming, you have to make some drastic preparations. Yeah? Isaiah talks there about... Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. Something huge is coming. It's not going to drive around our sin. (laughs) Yeah, there has to be a clearing away for what what is coming. Then John goes on to talk about snakes and trees. Heard that before somewhere, um, way back in Genesis. Snakes and trees. He tells the, the guys that come out to hear him, you are sons of vipers, brood of vipers family of serpents. Basically, he says to them, you are the children of Satan. Now, can you imagine if I greeted you like that this morning? I was going to do it for a laugh and then I thought, I better not. Um, You are the family of Satan. That's what he says. And when, when you read Matthew's account of it, Matthew's quite specific and lets us know that he is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people. And he says to them, you are children of the devil. That's pretty harsh. And he says to them, do you, you know, he, he, he says, who, flee, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, do you have any idea what's happening here? You don't belong here. <laughs> do you have any idea what I'm doing, what I am baptizing people for or what is coming up ahead? And he warns them against the error of resting in their ancestry. Because what the Jewish people tended to do was they would say, Abraham is my ancestor, therefore I'm okay. And we think, you know, people wouldn't do anything daft like that anymore, but we do do daft stuff like that where we say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, and therefore I'm okay with God. I'm saved. 
I'm born again and I've got my ticket to heaven and I'm going to make it. And John warns people, he says, you need to be very careful that you do not rely on a loose association with God. It doesn't work like that. But how often we do that? I go to church, I tithe, I read my Bible occasionally, I do reasonably good things, but there's no actual vibrant living walk with God in a person's life. John says you need to be really, really careful. Do not assume that because of something that loosely associated you with God in the past, that everything is is good with him now. And he tells them that God's judgment is closer than they think. The axe has been led to the root of the tree. It's like somebody cutting down a tree and they sort of set the axe against it just to sort of say, I'm going to hit it there. And then the swing has begun and cannot be stopped. There are events in motion that are going to bring judgment. And John says to these people in verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you've repented, live like it. Let me see some change because the axe is swinging already. He knows once you start swinging an axe, you're not going to stop it. Once that momentum has begun, the axe is going to hit whatever it's being swung at. You cannot prevent it. And he says the axe has already been led to the root of the tree. This is urgent. This is important. And I think we've got something to learn here about discipleship and about calling others to discipleship. John says, I want to see lifestyle changes that we're going to look at in a wee minute. I want to see lifestyle changes that are in keeping with someone who has repented. And I think in in leadership, in any context within the church, we need to call people to radical discipleship radical following of Jesus. We need to warn people about loose associations with Jesus that really don't pan out in a transformed life. We've got to keep calling people to discipleship, to following him, obeying his commands. A tree is meant to bear fruit, and if it's not bearing fruit, John says, it's going to get cut down. And then the people who hear him in verse 10 say, what should we do? Let's read verses 10 to 14. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Imagine that. Just imagine that. John did not go into Jerusalem and knock on the doors of the tax collectors and say, you should come to my meetings. They're in the wilderness at seven o'clock on Tuesdays. The tax collectors came to him. They were drawn to him. He's not, John's not seeker. Have you ever heard the phrase seeker sensitive? John's not going soft here to try to pull people in, but people are being drawn to his message. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. John is going to elaborate what repentance means. And I I love the fact that these three groups, the crowd, the tax collectors and the soldiers, they come and they say to him, what shall we do? 
I think people are yearning for discipleship. I think they're yearning to know what to do. I don't know about you, but I can remember a time early in my walk with God of just sort of sitting about in church every week thinking, I don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm saved. I'm born again. I've given my life to Jesus. I don't really know what I'm going to do for the next X number of years. And I believe there's a lot of Christians who just aren't quite sure, what am I meant to be doing right now? What, what happens between then and when I see him? What, what In the interim period, is there any purpose? Is there any point? But these guys are yearning. They're saying, what do we do? How do we live in light of, of what's happening and our response to this call to repent? How do we actually live? I'm not content with just a ticket to heaven. Jesus says that he gives us eternal life now. What does it look like? What should my life look like? And I think... In the background here, there's a, there's a sort of slightly obscure verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, where the prophet speaks the words of God and says, Return to me, and I will return to you. Calling people to return to God, to repentance, and this promise that God will then come and meet them, which is what John is doing. He's calling people to repentance because somebody's coming, somebody big, and you need to move the roundabout. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But then the response is, you ask, how are we to return? What shall we do? What does it look like to repent and turn to God? And John's response is very practical. There are no rules. There's no religion. He doesn't ask for sacrifices. It's really simple. He asks people to look after other people. Is that too simple for you? <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't give out a whole list of, you know, do this, do this, do that. He says, look after each other. If you've got two coats and you see somebody else who has no coat, hmm, you don't need to pray about it or fast about it or go and ask someone else about it. Give them the coat. That's what he says. Your repentance, the fruit that shows that you have repented is in how you treat other people. Not only with your coat, but also with your food. If you've got food, if you've got provision, you know, we, we can elaborate on that. If you've got money, if you've got a home, if you've got oil in the tank, if you've got a car, whatever, if you've got things and you see someone else who has nothing, give them something. <laughs> For goodness sake, be practical in your faith. And the people go away and they're like, okay. They've got something simple that they can go and do. They've they've experienced discipleship. I can now go and live out something that shows that my life is being transformed. And then the tax collectors come. And his message to them is really simple. Don't collect any more than you're required to collect. These guys went to Rome. These are Jewish men, tax collectors, who went to the Romans and they would bid for the right to collect taxes. It's like a franchise type thing. They would go and pay Rome and then they would be allowed to collect taxes for Rome. There was a certain amount that they should collect. They were allowed to collect a little bit more to cover their costs and that was it. But the extra bit was far more than they should have been asking for and they were pulling money out of people that they shouldn't have been taking. And John's message is really simple. And I want you to see something. He doesn't say to them, stop collecting taxes for those scumbag Romans. He's not going to go into some sort of political revolution here. He says, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing your job. 
But stop ripping people off. He doesn't tell them to leave work. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't say that it's wrong to collect taxes. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> he, he doesn't. He doesn't say you know you need to you need to knife Rome in the back and 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 turn turn away. He says keep doing what you're doing. You've got a job. It's fine to do that job. Stop ripping people off. Charge them fairly. You know, pay, charge them what they should give to Rome. Charge them a reasonable amount to cover your costs that you've paid to Rome and that you need to live on. Stop ripping them off. Real simple stuff. Real practical stuff. And then the soldiers come. And what soldiers would have done in those days was they would have used their power and their might and their force to extort money out of people and to make false accusations against people. And again, John just says, stop it. He doesn't say stop being a soldier. He just says stop it. Stop. You see the theme in everything here? Treat people well. Stop abusing people. Stop using your power or your authority or whatever you've got. Stop using it to abuse other people. Work hard. Be content with your wages. Stop ripping people off. He doesn't say to the soldiers, your wages are what they should be. He doesn't say to them, you're not entitled to a pay raise. Maybe they were entitled to a pay raise. He says to them, stop ripping people off. Stop ripping people off. And away they go, happy, because they've heard something that they can go and do. And there's a word here that, that's, that's hidden in Luke over and over again in this passage. You might know it, because you might remember going through Ephesians. You might not, and that's okay. Um, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, in the Greek text, there's this word poetes, or poem. We would come to English as poem. And in, in the English version, it says that we are God's masterpiece. And this, this word poetes, poem, speaks of, of someone who's crafting, who's making, who's doing. It's a word of activity. That word is in Luke chapter 3 in Greek in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 14. Over and over again, there's this talk of action. Do something. <laughs> For goodness sake, stop sitting around talking about religion and do something. Live differently. Treat other people well. That is what repentance looks at. It's a really, really powerful demonstration to the world. When we have lived previously in sin and we have mistreated other people and then we don't do that anymore and we treat people well, that speaks to the world more than a thousand million sermons will. Because they will see genuine repentance and transformation work itself out in how we treat others. I don't know about you, but when I do something wrong, my default is to find someone else to blame. Just the same way it happened back in the garden. That's your instinct. And, and instead of actually just saying, you know what, drop the ball. No excuse. Uh, we, we have this ability to, to, to come out with something like, I'm sorry that you were annoyed by me. In other words, we start off well and we say, I'm sorry, but then we shift the blame to them. It's your fault because you got annoyed. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. Stop at I'm sorry. Stop at the apology. Stop at accepting responsibility and just leave it. I'm sorry that I was ratty with you. It's because I was tired. No, no, stop. Leave the tired bit out. Just, just own sin. Own our mistakes and acknowledge them. And people will be amazed when we stop just projecting blame onto others for the way that we live. Treating others well is a fundamental value that we need to culture or cultivate. 
that background, that list of seven names at the start of Luke chapter 3, those were powerful people. And powerful people can abuse others. And we might not see tax collectors and soldiers, you know, in our face all day long the way these people maybe did. But you know what? If, if an employer asks someone to work excessive hours, that's oppressive and that's wrong. Or doesn't pay them enough for the work that they do, that is wrong. That's the abuse of power. Somebody at the bottom end of the pay scale isn't getting paid adequately. Someone at the top is just making a grotesque amount of money. That's wrong. And John would call it wrong. Burning people out, working them too hard. It can happen in church where volunteers are stretched to absolute breaking point. Because there's this culture in the church that, oh, the lights are on, which means you should be here. <laughs> Instead of the load being spread out and different people doing different things, there, there can be a culture in churches where volunteers are just murdered with one thing after another and guilt-tripped if they don't show up to everything. So what does this word repentance actually mean? Um, you've heard the story of Martin Luther, no doubt. Martin Luther was the dude that wrote out 95... Theses. He made this statement of, of how people should live and facts and truths. And the very first one was this. He nailed it to the door at Wittenberg. And he said, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Don't look back and say, I repented 10 years ago. If the last time you repented was 10 years ago, you're in serious bother, mate. <laughs> Our whole life is to be a life of repentance. It's not just something in the mind. It involves activity. Jesus called for it as well. Just in case you read through Luke chapter 3 and you breathe a sigh of relief and you think, oh, thank goodness that fella John is gone and we've got the new covenant and we're on the other side of the cross now and we don't have to deal with all of that stuff. Jesus at the end of Luke in chapter 24 talks about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't change. That call to repent. What does a transformed life look like? It looks like treating other people well. I don't care how many chapters of your Bible you read every day. If you don't treat other people well, you have not repented. You do not have a transformed life. And one of the things that I think can hold us back from repenting is a failure to realize how horrific our sin really is. You know? We don't actually get the gravity of it and how offensive it is in the eyes of God and therefore we don't see repentance as being necessary. There are other things that keep us from repenting. Sometimes the sins of others keep us from repenting. We compare ourselves to other people. Say, yeah, I did this, I need to sort it out, but he did that, you know. Or sometimes our wounds we nurse the wounds that have been inflicted on us by others. And we use that as an excuse. Yes, I've got these issues, but it's because of the way I've been treated. No. <laughs> the call to repent comes to us all. Sometimes we don't want to repent because there's a degree of shame involved, maybe, in, in even just going to a brother or sister and, and being honest and open about what we've done. John calls us to repent. Jesus calls us to repent. I'm drawn to a close. Here's the question. <clears throat> Do we really need Jesus? Because John's doing pretty well here. 
As you read through this chapter, in verse 15, which is where we've got to, it says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. So they're out in the wilderness. They're listening to this guy. They're seeing the tax collectors coming and the soldiers coming, people being baptized and hearing how to go and live a changed life and preparing for the, to receive forgiveness of sins. And they say, well, maybe he's the Christ. And you could look at this and think, John, you've done really well, mate. You've done really well. You've preached. People have responded. Lives are being changed. Do we really need anybody else? What, what does Jesus bring that you haven't brought? Because we go back to the Old Testament, you could be forgiven in the Old Testament. You could make your sacrifice and you could receive forgiveness. Obviously, Jesus is now the ultimate sacrifice and forgiveness all comes through him. But forgiveness was available. What does Jesus bring that John doesn't bring? John obviously thinks really good of him because John says in verse 16 that, uh, that one more powerful than I will come, a stronger one. And John actually says, I'm not fit to tie his shoelaces. Which is something that a Hebrew slave was not allowed to do for his master. It was too degrading. You were not, you know, a master was not permitted to force his slave to put his sandals on and off. It was too degrading. And John is not saying hanging around with Jesus is degrading. What John is saying is this guy is so far above me, it's, it's beyond explanation. So John obviously thought really well of him, but what does Jesus bring to the party? What does Jesus offer that was not offered before? Maybe in a slightly different way. And the answer is this. And the church needs to emphasize it more and more and more and more. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, I baptize with water. Here's the difference. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I've baptized. I've preached. I've told you about repentance. I've told you about receiving forgiveness. But what I can't give you is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can do that. The Holy Spirit comes in the Old Testament in fits and starts, now and again, on people, off people. In the New Testament, Jesus pours out the Spirit. And it's life-changing. And we're going to step out of Luke sometime over the next couple of weeks and go into maybe five or six weeks on the Holy Spirit. And, and also, what does this term mean, the baptism in the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of people in the church use it in a manner that is not actually biblical. They're sincere in how they use it, but I don't think it's actually biblically that accurate. But their heart is right that they want people to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus brings. Not only forgiveness, not only a perfect sacrifice for all sin, for all time, but he brings this outpouring of the Holy Ghost. That's why we need him. That's why John and John's ministry is not enough. John says, I baptize with water, but there's one coming who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one. He's the one. And something else that he does in verse 17 is he will judge. He will judge. And the picture is of a farmer in verse 17, and he's, got, he's, he's threshed his wheat. And on the threshing floor, he's crushed out the grain. On the threshing floor, there is wheat and there is chaff. 
And the way he separates them is he gets a, a winnowing fork and he lifts it and he chucks the whole lot up in the air. And the wheat is heavy and falls back down to the ground because it's got substance and it's got weight. But the wind blows the chaff away. And I want you to know and you need to know that Jesus comes to divide. He is divisive. <laughs> he will separate the wheat from the chaff. That which has no substance will blow away and gets burned. And that which is good will be retained. It's a strong picture and one we maybe don't linger on very much. The chaff goes to the fire. The wheat is retained. And in verse 18, we read that all of that is good news. <laughs> good news? Really? All this talk of judgment? All, you know, with the repentance and the, the, our sin and good news? Now, as I thought about this earlier, if we don't see, if we read Luke chapter 3 about John's ministry and we don't see it as good news... We simply do not appreciate how horrible sin is. We haven't even begun to grasp it. If we read of a call to repentance and transformation as being something oppressive or condemning or harsh or heavy, we haven't actually grasped sin. I do marvel every time we break bread. I've trained myself to do that. To be astonished every single time. I'm forgiven. We sang earlier, I can't remember the exact song, but we sang about the fact that we are forgiven. And I have trained myself that when I meditate on that, when I sing it, when I remember it, I allow myself to be astonished all over again. Because God is so holy and pure and perfect and my sin is so filthy and disgraceful but it's been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. And that's the best news in the whole world. <laughs> and you need to reflect on it, folks. You don't go away from a message like this or a passage like this thinking, oh, I've just taken another hammering about how I'm living and my need to repent. No, you go away marveling at the good news of the offer of forgiveness. It doesn't end well for John. In verses 19 and 20, he gets in the face of Herod. Now, a prophet doesn't just bring nice messages to encourage people. A prophet will get in the face of people and will put his finger in things and say, that is wrong. That's wrong. And what Herod is doing is he has taken Herodias to be his wife. Now, there's three reasons that he shouldn't have done that. Herod was married. That's reason number one. Herodias was married. That's reason number two. And reason number three was that Herodias was actually married to Herod's half-brother. So you got three reasons. How many offensive sins can you commit in one shot? Three reasons why he should not have taken her. But he did take her. And John got in his face and said, you are wrong. And Herod does what people do when someone challenges them about their sin. He explodes. And instead of dealing with his own conscience and his own heart, he throws John in prison. And we know from the other Gospels that he then beheaded John for entertainment at a dinner party. 
it is not popular to get in people's faces, especially powerful people like Herod, who think they're above accountability, and just say, do you know what? The way you're living is wrong. John pays the ultimate price for it. Sometimes you can sit with people as gentle as you possibly can and you can just say in as much love as you can possibly muster, do you know this thing? It's not right. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) And suddenly you're put in prison. You're shut down. You're silenced. That's Herod's response to the good news that John brought. Difficult passage, weighty passage. Make sure you go away not condemned. (laughs) Make sure you go away marveling at the offer of forgiveness. And knowing that repentance means a transformed life that in a very simple level treats other people well. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, help us not to reject this as something from before the cross. Help us to hear every word of this, Lord, and to to let it ring deep in our hearts and our souls, Lord. And Father, I ask that even now as as we sing, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work and will bring conviction of where repentance is necessary. And Lord, that we will have courage to respond, to not make up, excuses or to hide or to to think about the sins of others or the wounds that we we have endured but to, to have the courage to open our arms wide and receive the forgiveness of King Jesus. We love you Lord. We thank you for your word. Amen.